Hi, and welcome to the Upside Smackdown podcast. Today, the Project Smackdown team is sharing with you a complete CT surgery review from the recent Absite Smackdown Highlights Conference. Uh, the team asked me to do a brief presentation for you just to kind of intro it and to just remind you that twice yearly the team runs this conference that you can attend from anywhere that's live and allows you to ask questions in person. So with that, let's get to this talk by Dr. Claude and Lewis all about CT surgery for the Absite. Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Okay, we're ready to start, perhaps? So the countdown, I'll present, um, I'll pretend everybody's here. Just look at this, people in session. I see some human beings. All right. So unless you stop me, Jessica, I'm going to get started. All right. Well, I am Clauden Lewis. I am a cardiothoracic surgery chief resident at the University of Rochester Medical Center. I'm happy for you guys to be here today. We're going to talk about the best section of all times, which is on cardiothoracic. Let's go to the next slide. All right. So we're going to talk about the heart first. And specifically, this is on the congenital manifestations that pertain to the heart and how the heart grows. So the heart, believe it or not, is one tube, literally. There's an inflow, there's an outflow, one tube. That tube then folds on itself, and you have one end of the tube that has the truncus arteriosus. That later is going to become your aorta and your pulmonary artery. And then the other side of that tube is actually the atrium. So that tube turns into four quadrants because they, they then come together and then you have a connection between the ventricles and a connection between the atrium. The septum primum is going to be kind of the part that's between um, the atrium and it's going to grow. The primum grows downwards. You can see in the bottom left picture, it grows downwards towards the endocardial cushion. And if it was to stop growing, which happens for some people, you will have a defect, and that defect is called an ostium primum. So that just means a hole in the heart, almost like an atrial septal defect. But that is not the most common type of atrial septal defect. In fact, the ostium primum goes, the subseptum primum goes all the way down, the ostium primum is gone, and then a second hole is formed called the ostium secundum. And then you have a septum secundum, which is a second wall that kind of goes downwards. And between the two, there's like a flap, and that is called the ostium secundum. And when it is kind of large, it then allows blood flow to go in the wrong direction, so to speak, which, which typically is going to be from higher pressure to lower pressure, um, left to right. And you don't notice much of anything because oxygenated blood lives on the left side and the right side is deoxygenated. So it's really hard to tell. It's not like when it reverses. Having said that, that's just a quick glimpse of uh, what's going on on this page based on pressures. Um, should the endocardial cushions um, not meet with the septum on the bottom, then you'll have a VSD. And sometimes you don't have any septums coming at all or any primums between um, the walls and everything's kind of connected. We'll talk about what those congenital manifestations look like. Next slide. All right, so now we have the mature heart when all that is said and done. We can see all of the structures here. You have the right atrium, 
the edge of the right atrium being the right atrial appendage. We have the right ventricle. We have the left ventricle, which is on the right side of that screen. And then above that is the left atrium. We can see the pulmonary trunk, which essentially is coming out of the RV outflow. So that the out um, junction of the right ventricular blood flow will come out of the right ventricle and go into the pulmonary arteries. And then you have the left ventricle and the aorta is how that exits. We can see the SVC and the IVC um, there as well. Okay, the coronary arteries, we can see where that's going. We see the left atrium there. We see the, the left coronary artery, which is uh, labeled there. And before it branches out into the two coronaries, you have the left anterior descending and you have the left circumflex. And then for the right coronary artery, it's just that one coronary artery that's going around. And you'll see the right marginal is one of the branches and it'll have another branch most of the time called a posterior descending. Next slide. All right, so for delivery of oxygen, um, to make sense out of how much oxygen is going from one place to the other, you have what is in the hemoglobin of the RBCs and you have what is kind of just transfusing through the actual content itself that's dissolved oxygen in the blood. So to calculate that, you have the cardiac output. Then you have just a number that you're multiplying by that tells you what the oxygen binding capacity is for hemoglobin. And then, of course, you'll need the specific hemoglobin that the person has. You know, it could be as high as 12, 13, 14, 15. It could be as low as 6, 7, 8. Depends on how low it is. You'll be multiplying that in there. And then there's saturation of oxygen, um, which is usually a percentage for us. Um, but it's expre expressed as a decimal in that equation. And then you'll add that to the amount of dissolved oxygen based on the pressure, the partial pressure of PaO2 times 0 0.003. And that will help you know what the oxygen content of the arterial blood is based on the cardiac output. Next slide. So now we're going over some of the medications that you're using as it pertains to its manipulation on the cardiovascular system. So we have the butamine, the butamine working mostly on beta-1 and also beta-2. Beta-1, a lot of those receptors you'll find on the heart in and of itself. So if you're giving someone the butamine, you're increasing its ability to contract and you're increasing the heart's ability to contract at a certain frequency. So expect the heart rate to go up and also expect the cardiac index which is gonna be the output over the body surface area per patient for those to go to those to go up. Now, the wedge pressure goes down. Now, why does the wedge pressure go down? PAWP, the pulmonary artery wedge pressure. Well, if you think about it, the, the wedge pressure is almost like the left atrial pressure because the way you measure it, you're getting the pressure that's beyond um, a wedged pulmonary artery catheter. So that pressure you expect to be lower because if you're more efficient in emptying your LV, then you're having less of a backup in your left atrium. So you're moving things forward. So expect that to go down. Also, your systemic vascular resistance may go up slightly. And your mean arterial pressure, depending on the hemodynamics overall, may go up or down. Then you have murinone, which is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. And it functions as a vasodilator but it also has the ability to function as an inotrope. So its ability also to help the heart squeeze, but it also decreases the blood pressure. So in this particular setting, you have a patient 
who is, let's say they have a high blood pressure and they're not squeezing enough such that the cardiac index is down, Mironone is a very good medication to give them. Why? Because you can not only bring their blood pressure down a little bit lower so it's not too high, but you can also increase the performance of the heart's contractility. Thus, their wedge pressure will also go down because you'll empty their LV a little bit better and you'll also get them to beat a little bit more. So a lot of patients who are in heart failure, Mironone is a very, very good medication to just kind of leave them on. Next slide. So dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine are discussed on this slide here. Very important medications, especially norepinephrine and epinephrine. So for dopamine, it stimulates the dopamine receptors, beta-1, beta-2, alpha-1. So they stimulate a lot of things. And the best thing that I can say about dopamine is, depending on the concentration you're using it, you kind of get different performances. So it's really hard to say what's going up or what's going down. As you can see, a lot of things are going up, a lot of things are going down. So I have a different slide that will explain a little bit better. But again, it's based on the concentrations in which you are using it. Norepinephrine stimulates beta-1, beta-2, and what I think is most important is alpha-1. Your alpha-1 receptors being mostly peripheral, um, so expect that if you have a low blood pressure, that by using norepinephrine, it is the first presser that we are talking about, as in a medication that can increase your pressure when it is low. Therefore, your mean arterial pressure will go up. Your, the resistance in your system, your systemic vascular resistance, will go up. Um, but also, your wedge may go up as well, based on using norepinephrine. Epi is a very, very good medication, although it is similar to norepinephrine in both in name and at least based on what it's stimulating. They're very different medications. Epinephrine is a majority uh, medication that you would use and expect to function mostly on the heart, but it does have some alpha-1 activity as well. So if I had a patient whose cardiac output or index is just rather low, so they are in heart failure, I can use mironone but what is the problem with mironone? If the patient is already hypotensive, you can't use mironone because you'll drop their blood pressure lower. You'll get them in trouble. You can use epi. So epi will help their heart squeeze better, get more output, get more tachycardia, and then it actually brings the blood pressure in the peripheral vascular system up and not down. So epi is usually the medication for a patient you're using who is in cardiogenic shock. Next page. The AmpSite Smackdown podcast is going live. Reserve your seat for our upcoming live AmpSite review conference. Can't travel? On call? No problem. This online conference is recorded so you can catch up anytime. Reserve your spot by visiting us at AmpSiteSmackdown.com and selecting Latest News for more information. So I wanted to go through just rather quick the dose-dependent methods of, of dopamine so you can see the difference and what performances they are based on the dose. And they're going through whether we're using three mics versus three to 10 or greater than 10. And then you can see the performance of them in those different spectrums of their use. So lower doses, you're getting more splenic blood flow. You know, in the higher doses, you're getting more tachycardia. In the mid-range doses, you're getting kind of an inotrope effect of it. Next slide. 
So phenylephrine and vasopressin, as mentioned on the slide here, are vasopressors. But the truth of the matter is I would also put norepinephrine in that group as well. They, they have the ability to increase the blood pressure for a patient who is hypotensive. Specifically, phenylephrine and vasopressin will not change your heart rate. So if I had a patient who had a low heart rate, so let's say something less than 60, and was hypotensive, then I would use norepinephrine because norepinephrine will increase their heart rate and will bring their blood pressure up so I could get better performance out of that heart. But let's say I had the person who was 115 beats per minute and was hypotensive, you know, with like a blood pressure of 70 over 40, then perhaps with them already being tachycardic, if I use norepinephrine, also known as Levo, then the problem with that medication is, is that it might make them even more tachycardic. And the more tachycardic you are, the decreased filling time you have for your heart, therefore your contractility and ejection fraction is not ideal. So you might not be changing your blood pressure as much as you would hope. Going too fast, you're not helpful in how you help the heart empty itself so you can feed the body. So phenylephrine, also known as NEO, is a good medication that won't be changing the heart rate. Um, it may increase your wedge pressure a little bit. Why? Well, you're increasing the blood pressure, but you're not changing the ability of the heart to empty. So with all things being equal, if you go up on your afterload, which means your blood pressure for the most part, the pressure that your heart has to squeeze against, but you're actually not increasing the heart's ability to do a better Job, then perhaps you'll empty just a little bit less of what's in your heart into your body because you're bringing the blood pressure up. So therefore, your left atrium might see a little bit more volume, a little bit more pressure. Therefore, your wedge pressure will go up, if anything. That's with all things being equal. Vasopressin being rather similar in that regard. Some people think it's a stronger vasopressor than Neo, Neo being the weakest of the three. Um, but that one also doesn't change the heart rate or contract or contractility, thus the index, but can increase your systemic vascular resistance in your MAP. Now we have nitroglycerin and nitroprusside. Those are vasodilators to some extent. Mironone functions in that exact same way as a vasodilator to a peripheral system, except mironone is able to bring up your contractility for your heart. Whereas, as you can see for nitroglycerin and nitroprusside, the cardiac index typically has no change. So if you wanted to bring the blood pressure a little bit lower, these are medications that you can consider. They cause smooth muscle relaxation. Next page. So this is cardiopulmonary bypass. And I can assure you, I did not create this slide, um, but they believe that this is important for you to know. And this is how we do heart surgery, to be honest with you. This is incredibly important. So just to really go over this pathway, kind of to simplify it before we even discuss it, the truth of the matter is, what in the world are we looking at? You are essentially taking away from what's going in the heart and you're putting back what's what ultimately be coming out of the heart so that the heart is excluded. It's the only way that we can operate on a heart with it staying still and having a bloodless area to work in. Otherwise, you have a beating 
and blood-filled cavity. And it's kind of hard to change someone's valve if it's beating in front of you and it needs to use it at the same time you're trying to change it. So what you would do is you would have a venous return line. What is it returning to? It's returning to a pump. So that's in blue, which is at the level of the right atrium and IVC. Those things are, we call it, you know, perhaps you can say is a, a dual stage venous cannula because it's in two different areas. Um, but the SVC's content is going to fall in the right atrium anyway. So you're kind of getting, you know, majority of all the blood flow that the body's giving. And then you'll kind of put it through the pump. So you have the SVO2 there. It goes in a reservoir, which is a collection. And then it ultimately it will be pumped at a certain speed that the perfusionist is controlling. And then you'll see that there's an arterial inflow. The arterial inflow is going in the ascending aorta, very close to the level of the anominate, and it is essentially giving blood to the body so that the heart doesn't have to do it. And is going in at a certain speed to maintain the patient's expected cardiac index. And as you can see, under that arterial inflow is a cross clamp. So none of that blood is going back to the aortic valve. It's skipping all of that. Then you also have the two catheters that it takes to feed the heart so that the heart can go to sleep. And those two catheters are either an antegrade, that means it's going the direction of the coronary arteries, or a retrograde, which means it's gonna go in the coronary sinus, which by the way, will go to the coronary arteries backwards, retro. So those two methods can give you a medication that has potassium, you know, um, also known as cardioplegia, so that the heart can go to sleep. Then the last catheter that you see inside of the heart we use sometimes is called the LV vent. In order for the heart to do a good job resting and returning back to life without any issues, you need good cardioplegia to put it to sleep, and you need the LV to be what's called decompressed, it needs to be empty, it needs to be a pancake, because the opposite of it, such as it being so filled with blood that it's a basketball, it will not recover. Extremely unsafe for the heart to have too much blood flow, to have too much, too much blood in it. You know, And sometimes if the blood's not being captured by the venous return line and it goes through the tricuspid valve, goes to the pulmonary artery, comes back in the left atrium, sits in the LV, and then you have that cross clamp on, what happens, you have a basketball that's essentially being formed under your LV. And most patients will not come off bypass if that was to happen. So you have an LV vent to kind of collect like any blood that kind of slips past you and you can send it back to the pump. Next slide. So even more on this slide, at least the remainder of what was discussed on the other slide was that, you know, there are some microemboli. There are chances for small things that don't belong to kind of be shot to the brain. So for some patients, very rarely, we have what's called pump head where, you know, Patients may not be as, you know, robust as they were and vibrant as they were when they were put on bypass. You know, it might take them another day or two to kind of be back to what you expected their baseline was. We don't do a perfect job at mimicking what the body does. So using these mechanical things, you know, they're always going to be second to what the body's performance can be. But there are also manifestations that can happen for some patients very rarely. You know, the kidneys may have insufficiency. The 
the liver may be upset and have transaminitis. The pancreas may be upset as well and have chemical pancreatitis. The blood in some cases can have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Why? Because in order to use the pump, you need to give people close to 400 units of heparin per their body weight in kilogram. We're talking about on the order sometimes of close to 40,000, 50,000 units of heparin in one shot in order to use this device and for it to not have blood clots throughout it. Otherwise, you'll have to quickly get another one and reconnect it as complex as it may be um, because those blood clots would not allow you to do your job. There's a lot of different components that probably lie on outside of the aspects of the, this conversation, but some of them are labeled there. Next slide. So this is kind of touching up on the structures as well. And technically speaking, this is a congenital heart defect. This specific defect is called a truncus arteriosus. And as you can see, it also has a ventricular septal defect. So if your truncus did not partition appropriately, that means that your aorta did not separate from your pulmonary artery. Because remember, we said your body your heart, that is, was once one tube with one end of it being where the aorta and pulmonary artery would be from and the other end of it near that kind of the atrium. Well, in this particular situation, no line divided between the truncus arteriosus and the pulmonary artery. And this can happen at different specific levels. As you can imagine, there's uh, about four different types of truncus arteriosus. Having said that, you have one outflow. So that means that your deoxygenated blood that's coming from your IBC and SVC entering your RA and then going into your RV will be ejected together with the blood that's going from the left atrium through the mitral valve to the left ventricle. And together, those two contents will go throughout your body through the aorta and the pulmonary artery. Why is that not good? It's particularly not good because you're going to have blood that the left ventricle is squeezing, potentially going down the pulmonary artery vasculature. And as you can imagine, your aorta usually has a higher blood pressure than your pulmonary artery. But if you were to expose the pulmonary artery to the blood pressures your aorta will see, that's a huge problem because they do not tolerate it. In fact, they have to hypertrophy and the muscles of the pulmonary artery will change. They will change such that to survive, they'll have to become thicker and stronger. And ultimately you may get what's called Eisenmenger syndrome where the pulmonary arteries have now thickened and changed and the blood flow direction of things going into the pulmonary artery as easily will decrease. And then you'll have a different direction in which the blood flows are going. And that makes it rather difficult to send blood through that system. Right now you can see it's purple at the trochosoteriosis and between the two um, outflows, they're, they're both getting, you know, some level of volumes and, and, and that will change over time. We're seeing this more most commonly in some of the um, illnesses such as the George syndrome, for which this is a common problem with. And this is one of the T's, when I say T's, there are multiple T's of congenital heart diseases that will present as cyanosis or some level of concern at the time of birth. Next slide. Transposition of the great arteries or the great vessels essentially means that you kind of have it crisscrossed. You have the wrong um, vessels coming out of those ventricles. 
So right now we see what's normal. We see a right atrium, we see a right ventricle. So that's concordant and that's appropriate. And then the right ventricular outflow tra um, graph um, track goes to an aorta. That's not correct. The RV does not empty into the aorta and the reverse is also true, that the left ventricle is emptying into the pulmonary artery. Um, not good. So there have been several different ways to repair this, really two in particular. There used to be a complex way called an atrial switch, of which there were two types. And then um, most recently now, we kind of just switched those superior vessels and were able to reattach the aorta to the left ventricular outflow and then the pulmonary are um, coming off of the RV. So there's actually a way to switch those vessels. And um, and essentially get very good outcomes for these patients. You do have to detach the coronary arteries because they need to be on the new um, vessels coming off, but that's just a part of the switch procedure. And then you have um, the CCTGA, which means that it's technically corrected. Because if you look very closely, you'll see that the right atrium is going to the left ventricle, right? And then the left ventricle, which is on the right side of the patient, will then empty into the pulmonary artery. Okay, well, ultimately you have what was once the right atrium giving volume to the pulmonary artery with a incorrect ventricle in the middle. And then for the other one, you have a left atrium that's emptying to a right ventricle that then squeezes to an aorta. So over time, that RV is going to have to hypertrophy and kind of take on a different um, morphology to do a good job to send body to send blood to the to the body, and the left ventricle kind of at some point needs to dilate a little bit more so that it can kind of send you know a low pressure system blood flow to the pulmonary arteries. But the patients will not present the same because it's it's kind of corrected. Is clinically corrected if you think about it in regards to the right blood flow going to the patient ultimately. Next slide. So now we have Tetralogy of Fallot, and this is probably one of the more common um, congenital heart diseases. Um, you have a thickened muscle of the RV, so the RV is inappropriately, you know, kind of getting thick. Um, you have the aorta kind of getting some of the blood flow because of the VSD, the ventricular septal defect that is present and, and the aorta is kind of overriding. So it's receiving some of that bad um, blood that it should not be getting. And your RV is already getting its blood flow, but look what's happening to the valve um, of the pulmonary artery. It's kind of stenotic. So unfortunately, your blood doesn't know any better. It's just gonna go through the path of least resistance. And as much as it would make sense that not a lot of um, low pressure blood from the RV will go into the aorta, but the problem is, is that going through the stenotic pulmonary valve itself is already with great difficulty. So to some extent, there is going to be blood flow from the right ventricle that's going to be ejecting into the aorta. And then your body's going to see that deoxygenated blood and you're not going to be doing a good job with it because that deoxygenated blood um, is going to go throughout your body and bring down your SATs um, that make you less efficient. So for some patients, they, they tend to learn, well, if I can do something to my body that's going to force the blood flow to have a difficult time going through my VSD and force the blood to go through my pulmonary artery, that's actually going to make me feel better. So for some patients, they'll start squatting down. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best of your Absite review.
And that squatting down is essentially um, decreasing the blood flow that's going to be going through that aorta. You're essentially increasing the afterload. So you're kind of making a fake stenosis of your aortic valve, so to speak, so that you're forcing it to go through the only other exit, which was the st stenotic pulmonary valve. Ultimately, there are ways to treat it, um, some of which are palliative and not definitive, um, which, you know, there have been many different ways. So what if we just kind of connect um, our pulmonary artery to like one part of our subclavian? So now we're able to kind of give some of the blood back and we can just pour it into um, the pulmonary artery system from the systemic side. Well, if you do that, you might be overflowing your pulmonary artery side. They're getting blood flow all throughout the times as opposed to what the RV can do, which the RV would be sending it with a systolic diastolic like kind of an up and down type of method. So you'll have an, an overflow or you can do an RV outflow um, uh, uh, graph so that you can have your connection between your RV and a whole new conduit that will be going to your pulmonary artery so that you're not having to deal with this uh, stenotic method. And then ultimately you would fix your VSD so that you're not having that mixing um, taking place anymore. Next slide. Um, so speaking of left to right shunts, so this is one that's happening at the atrial um, level. So this is atrial septal defect, which is one of the more common um, adult congenital defects. We technically spoke about them before, and we said that the secundum was the most common. Just a quick reminder from that previous slide. So you have the septum primum that's coming down. The septum primum will go all the way down and, and meet the endocardial cushion. And ultimately, a septum um, primum would partition the left atrium for the right atrium. And if it stopped early, you would have an osteum primum. So that means the first hole in the heart. Let's say you don't have the osteum primum. You will always have a new hole that's formed, um, which is called your osteum secundum, which when that stays kind of patent inappropriately for long periods of time, then that technically is your um, atrial septal defect secum secundum type, which is the more common type. Okay. And they mentioned some other aspects of them, you know, based on uh, the paradoxical emboli. That means if you were to have a blood clot in your leg, you know, that was to you know, go up, um, could that cross over? Um, or if you had a blood clot more so in your right system, could that cross over to your left atrium and go to your brain? So something on the, the pulmonic side or something on the right atrial inflow side can cross over and get you in big trouble. That would be a problem. Another example would be, you know, no one, no one really watches too closely when you're getting like an IV injection to make sure that there aren't any air in those IV lines. But if you had a connection between your right and left atrium, it's a huge deal because whatever goes in one side can cross over to the other side. And then you also have a fixed split S2 um, such that the pressures are equal so that when you hear that second contraction, they happen more closely because you have the differences in the volume that's going across of it. There's some medications there, but ultimately based on the size, you can fix it via a percutaneous repair, usually like less than, I think, 3.8 centimeters. There's a way to treat it interventionally um, versus a surgical repair, which is not very difficult at all. And again, these things are being treated at school age. Um, as opposed to like at birth, because the compromise with uh, an ASD problem is much less than a VSD problem, because right now you're dealing with volumes. As long as you have an appropriate tricuspid valve and mitral valve, um, you're just dealing with the compliance of the ventricles as opposed to causing them to have a pressure problem. Next slide. 
so ventricular septal defect, which I think is um, also a concerning problem. And it is, you know, to some extent spontaneously closed depending on the type. There are several different types. Majority of them are probably out of the scope of this uh, conversation. Um, but some of them do close prior to six months. So it's worth watching them. If they don't close or their size is large enough, then you need to consider that you may have what's called Eisenmenger syndrome. Eisenmenger syndrome, again, is when you're exposing the pulmonic system too long to high pressures, essentially you can cause them to change. And when they change, they change permanently. They change forever. The muscles become thickened. They have to be able to tolerate that high blood pressure that you're sending it. And it ultimately does not do well for it. And then you start to get a a right to left shunt. So that left to right, what you expect, because left side is usually um, higher. When it then switches, because if they're not able to go through the pulmonary artery that easy, they would rather go through the aorta. That's a problem, you know. And by then, you already had Eisenmenger syndrome set in. Those patients will ultimately require a lung transplant. That's how bad it is. So the goal is to never let it go unrepaired for such a long period of time. The patent ductus arteriosus also happens to be on this slide. The picture is not there, but imagine having a connection between your pulmonic, usually um, close to your uh, left pulmonary artery and your aorta. Your aorta essentially 100% of the time gets to send a little bit of blood to your pulmonic um, 100% of the time. So essentially some people say it's a continuous machine like murmur that you're listening to because it's connected and it gets to just send that blood all the time. It's not something that you want to deal with um, for a long term. You would you know, need to intervene on it sooner than later for the same reasons we discussed. Um, but having said that, sometimes a patent ductus arteriosus is helpful because what if I told you you also had a congenital manifestation such as um, uh, you, you have essentially no method to mix your blood because you have an aorta coming off your right ventricle and your pulmonary arteries coming off your left ventricle, the only thing that is mixing is your PDA. Well, then for those patients, you want to keep it open. So you would give them prostaglandins, um, PGE2, in order to keep it open because before you close it, you need to treat the other issue that is actually keeping that patient alive. And in the case you don't have that problem, which is majority of the time, and you want to try closing it, then endomethacin um, would close a PDA. And when it doesn't, then you need to intervene on it, for which you can do an operative ligation. And usually for a child, it's through a thoracotomy incision, kind of going under their arm through the thorax. Sometimes you see it in, in adults, and it's a whole different process because it may be calcified. So you may have to do it from a sternotomy approach. And just simply ligating it might not be the easiest thing of all times. Next slide. We have an aortic coarctation. So this is when you kind of had, you see this little stenosis between the distal portion of the aortic arch going into the descending aorta. So what ends up happening is there's a pressure gradient between the two. And this isn't something that you like to see because, you know, sometimes you don't notice this presentation or you may see that a patient has kind of robust blood pressures in their upper extremities and extremely low blood pressures in their lower extremity. And that's because um, of this kind of stenosis. So re fixing this is, um, 
is very important and it's similar to how you would um, approach the PDA. It will usually be um, for a young patient through a thoracotomy, so kind of going through the thorax um, of the body wall and kind of resecting an edge from both sides and reconnecting them. Next slide. So valve replacements is another cardiac surgery procedure. So this is mostly for adults and acquired valvular heart disease, although in similar cases um, for young children as well. Um, there are multiple types of ways that you can replace their valve. You can use a mechanical valve, so it's some level of being metal, usually by leaflet. It's the most durable because we expect it to laugh, last um, your entire life. However, as can imagine, most things require some level of compromise. It requires anticoagulation, usually in the form of warfarin, for life, um, and sometimes needing to have an INR, which is the method of controlling the level of warfarin between two and three. A bioprosthetic valve, which is a valve that may be bovine or porcine, so cow or pig, um, and they're usually less durable than mechanical valve. Um, the amount of time that you get on them is really variable also on the age of the patient. Sometimes you actually get less time out of a young patient and you get more time out of an older patient. But I'll probably say a fair, a fair number would be something like 10 years, you know, maybe 13, 14, but somewhere around 10. And these valves typically have some level of destruction and or may need to be replaced. So based on their age, you should really consider what you're doing. Less than 60, maybe you should consider mechanical, you know, greater than age 65, maybe you should consider bioprosthetic, you know, and, and now there's other ways to do it outside of just pure open heart surgery. So the options are really up to you. Cadaveric, also known as homograph, is less durable. Um, that kind of is taking the whole route um, together as opposed to what you see here, which is an allograph that was put together. You'd be taking kind of like the whole route of like a, a cadaver and putting that together. And sometimes they tend to calcify among other things, but they're very similar to what you have natively and they don't require any anticoagulation. Next slide. So we have some different congenital anomalies, less common to more common. Congenital anomalies being bicuspid valve, as you can see that aortic valve is destructed. It's in both the graphic on the bottom right and it's also in the cadaver on the bottom left. Um, you can have rheumatic fever, where as you can see near the commissures, uh, these valves are a little bit more fused. Um, and then you can have age-related calcific erixinosis, which is extremely common, our most common issues with the aortic valve. You know, you'll have a 75-year-old who just has severe aortic stenosis, and you do an echo and you see that they have it as a calcific aortic stenosis type, um, for which several options exist. You can do the valves that we mentioned before, or you can also do a new technology called transcatheter aortic valve replacement or implantation, depending on what site you look at, also known as TAVR where you can place it into someone extremely minimally invasively through a vessel and kind of bring it up the aorta and drop it in like an umbrella. Very um, interesting technology. They mentioned on this slide as well, bypass conduit durability. Um, although it's not connected with the pictures, but coronary artery bypass, um, which is some of our most common procedures for the most common reasons why human beings die, coronary artery disease, there is differences in the conduits that you use for which you bypass. 
So LEMA also stands for left internal mammary artery is one of the most important graphs that you can use. And for most patients, it's bringing them back to the life expectancy, usually no less than 20, 25 years sometimes. The saphenous vein um, is another very good durable conduit. I don't know if I would say it's way better than the radial artery, it's just that it's probably more versatile. So for most other blockages, we'll just go into the leg and get maybe one length or two lengths of vein and we'll bypass other areas outside of the left anterior descending. Left anterior descending usually gets the best conduit, which is the lima, and everything else gets everything else. Radial artery is actually very good, but you can never use the radial artery unless it's a very high-grade stenosis. These vessels are, they get upset um, very easily, so you need to use them on a high-grade stenosis, like 90% blockage or better, whereas you can put the, the saphenous veins on like 70% blockages and, and do just fine. Next slide. All right, so now we have a chest radiograph here. It looks like we're switching up just a little bit. This is now um, pertaining to the thoracic hat of cardiothoracic surgery. So a couple of levels that are important is, you know, T8, where you get vena cava, um, T10, the esophagus and the vagus nerves as well. And then you have the thoracic duct and the aorta coming through 10, um, T12. Um there are a number of mnemonic devices that you can use for that. As it pertains to the lungs, there's type 1 and type 2 alveoli. Type 1 is useful for the functional gas exchanges, whereas the type 2, also known as pneumocytes, produce surfactant, which decreases the surface tension. And they're about maybe 1% of the alveoli at large. To go over some of the, the major lung cancers, you have non-small cell and you have small cell. Non-small cell could be squamous cell carcinoma. That's one of them, pretty popular. It can also be adenocarcinoma. Small cell is its own category. You know, it is, it is a bad problem to have. Um, the examples are also there. And sometimes you're able to tell the difference between the two because they'll produce different things. You know, um, squamous cell cancer might be associated with a parathyroid hormone-like substance. Um, the small cell cancers also has their own ability to cause um, some parent or neoplastic syndromes, you know, with ACTH and ADH and whatnot. So a little bit differences in there. Both squamous and small cell may show up in smoking histories. And sometimes adenocarcinoma shows up in patients who've never smoked a day in their life. Next slide. This is the eighth edition of the TNM um, classification for kind of uh, staging patients. Um, you stage them by their, the things that changes their Teague staging, which is usually size related. Um, you may see some other differences based on how proximal they are to important structures, as you can see in T4. And then the next thing that's very important is what is their end stage? What is their lymph node involvement? And for the lungs, it's rather simple. If it's in one, then it's on the side of the chest where your lesion is. If the N2 lymph nodes are involved, then that's in the mediastinum. And if your N3 lymph nodes are involved, it's on the other side of the other lung, either the other side of the mediastinum or in the other lung, so to speak. You know, um, And then you have M1, distant metastasis. So are you seeing um, a lesion that's in the brain? When you have a known cancer in your lung, well, guess what? That's likely a distant metastasis. Do you have something in your adrenal gland? that you're seeing pick up on the PET, the, the PET scan and whatnot, well, then that's concerning as well. Most of these patients, 
if you do a CT scan, you're going to be able to diagnose majority of these patients based on their TNN stage um, status. It will be a clinical diagnosis because unless you get the pathology in your hand, it will never be pathologic. It will be a clinical diagnosis. You'll say, I see a three-centimeter lesion in the lung, and I see a concerning lymph node. That's about one centimeter. That is the definition of a concerning lymph node. And then you can say, this person might be T this in that, you know, and then based on that, you can kind of go off where you think they are without metastasis. Next slide. All right, so on this, on this page, you're talking about one procedure called the mediastinoscopy. So mediastinoscopy, as described here, is a method to obtain tissue diagnosis of lesions that are central. Um, specifically, if you were to look at your neck and find above your manubrium this suprasternal notch, we would make a very small incision and kind of track along your trachea and this picture on the left side is very good because kind of under all of those major vessels, we would be able to develop a plane and find some paratracheal lymph nodes that we can go after. And sometimes if we go very far before um, your trachea splits kind of right under there, there's an area called the subcarinal where we can look for a subcarinal lymph node. We can get big samples and send that all off and figure out if a patient has a certain disease that's involving their lymph nodes. That's the best way to stage them. There are some less invasive ways to do that. Sometimes, especially if it's lymphoma, you need more tissue for what's called lymphoma protocol. But if you don't think it's lymphoma, you can actually do what's called an EBUS. And I'll show you a picture on that in a couple of more slides. And that stands for endobronchial ultrasound. So as far as we're concerned, mediastinoscopy is using a scope in the mediastinum. Then there's the Chamberlain procedure. Um, the Chamberlain procedure is an, is, is an eponym, but the real term for it is a left anterior thoracotomy. And that left anterior thoracotomy is able to get specifically to a couple of lymph node areas. We call that area five and six, um, believe it or not, where they're kind of near the AP windows. They're near the aorta and pulmonary artery, and you can kind of get those samples. Whereas you would have a tough time getting it if you were doing it through a mediastinoscopy. Another name for that Chamberlain procedure is a mediastinotomy. As you can imagine, everyone confuses the two. They are very different, but they are similar in that you are assessing it usually to get um, these hard to acquire lymph nodes. No. Next slide. So this is a bronchoscope. So a bronchoscope may be used to check for airway lesions or lesions that are in the airway or just for toilet bronchoscopy. So to kind of clear the airway of mucuses when you have um, mucus plugs and whatnot. So this is useful. Also on this slide, discussed here is the different stages of lung cancer um, and they kind of go through what are all the options to be a stage one versus that of stage two. So I'll show you that on a different slide, but really and truly there's a couple patterns to it um, that may make this a little bit more palatable. Next page. So this is an endobronchial ultrasound. So different than a bronchoscopy, a bronchoscopy kind of has like a camera on the tip. This one has an ultrasound on its side. And that ultrasound is also paired to a needle. And you can see that needle partially uh, coming out. It's in blue. 
and it's on the shaft of that um, endobronchial ultrasound. And right now it's staring at what you can see on the screen, which is in red and blue of that ultrasound. That means it's a vessel. Typically stay away from the vessel. You don't want to bleed. But your goal is to find the lymph node that you can sample. You will actually see the structure of a lymph node with this device. And that's how you can get a diagnosis or staging by getting the in. Um, when you see something concerning on a CT scan, you can then perform this endobronchial ultrasound to get a diagnosis based on the lymph nodes in the mediastinum. Next slide. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsightSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Stay History lung cancer, again, we'll go over the stages. There's a different method to, to look at these um, these cancers, but as you can imagine, they're concerning. Usually if they're stage three, then they have probably involved um, some of the lymph nodes in a devastating way. Um, the methods in which you're treating majority of these patients have some level of cisplatin. Um, as a neoadjuvant, that means before you do anything else, uh, chemotherapy followed by surgery. And in some cases, you're doing surgery and you're just doing um, chemotherapy afterwards. Um, for some cases, if you're doing surgery, radiation is not necessary unless you have not left a clean margin. Then sometimes you're using um, chemotherapy with radiation. Um, anyone who has lymph node involvement, you're gonna be doing chemo. So for lung cancer, you have a lymph node involved, you're gonna be doing chemo. And if you're over a certain size, you should be considering chemo for sure. You should be considering it. Next slide. So again, diagnosis of primary lung cancer. This is a chest radiograph. It's not normally how we would diagnose, but what you would say is I get a sense that there's some type of opacity or concern in that left chest. You can't really tell if it's the upper lobe or the, or the lower lobe, because by the way, the upper lobe um, does go low and the lower lobe does go high. You have to actually see it on a CT scan. Um, they're actually not necessarily one is above the other. Um, you actually have parts of both in both regions. So it's actually hard to tell from here. But what we do know is that it is a sizable mass um, and should be seen further with a CT scan to assess it, to see the mass itself, to describe it, and to see if there's any concerning lymphadenopathy, lymph nodes on that side. And then the next step would be to try to figure out, well, what is the best method that I can actually get a diagnosis of this? And should I employ, in some cases, the media stenotomy, also known as Chamberlain procedure, since it happens to be coincidentally on the left side, you know? If it's within the lung, then you might need to take a chunk of the lung or you can send uh, through the skin a transcutaneous method to biopsy it. So there are, there are so many options. This really depends on the patient, um, what they can tolerate and what you know so far based on their diagnosis and their workup. Next slide. So then you have stage four cancers. By the time you have a stage four cancer, at, at some extent, you have uh, some type of metastasis or some extremely important structure that cannot be respected is involved, you know? So um, this is concerning. By the time you see a pleural effusion that has cancer cells in it, you can consider it stage four. Um, those are concerning areas. So small cell, unfortunately, you know, for lung cancer period, they tend to present 
later in stage because you're going without symptoms for such a long period of time that the clock is still going. And you're not usually seeing homoptosis and things like that until a little bit late sometimes. Um, for the small cell cancer chemotherapy, you have the cisplatin atoposide. And then for non-small cell, um, for stage two or greater, technically, if it's involved in the lymph nodes, was our secret we talked about earlier, then you might be having another type of platinum or taxols as well. There are several combinations. A lot of them are in abbreviations of four letters of the different methods that you can use to treat these cancers. And the methods are always changing, but there's going to be some platinum therapy. I can assure you that much. Next slide. Um, just to quickly touch on lung cancer surgery period, you need to know what they can tolerate. And how do you know what they tolerate? Well, first of all, you know, PFTs, pulmonary function testing. We'll probably touch on that just a little bit later. But you also want to know what you're dealing with. And this is a different way to kind of stage anybody with lung cancer. So you have um, different T staging. So as you can see, if we look at T1A, that's anybody who has a tumor that's less than one centimeter, T1B between one and two centimeters, T1C between two and three, T2A between three and four, T2B, so on and so forth. If you have a lymph node that is involved and you have a 1.7 centimeter tumor and you have an N1 um, lymph node, which means it's ipsilateral on the same side of the chest and not at the mediastinum, then that patient has a stage 2B cancer. And what you would do is sample so that you actually have the diagnosis, not just saying it looks pathologic. And then once you have that sample in the mediastinum that it is positive for, you know, um, the lung cancer, then you can say it's a pathologic stage 2B. And the next step would be, hey, how do I fix this? You know, next slide. We talked about pulmonary function testing. So a couple of things that are important um, is your FEV1. Um, greater than two liters. So let's say you had a huge mass that's abutting the major vessel that's feeding your entire lung, your pulmonary artery, by the way, you know, um, then you may have no choice in order to get rid of their cancer to get rid of the entire lung. Well, luckily for us, one lung is suffice, believe it or not, unless you've been smoking with both for a long period of time. You, living on one lung is feasible. So can you tolerate it is the question. Well, do you have an FE1 greater than two liters? Well, then you can probably tolerate a pneumonectomy. Same is true for a lobectomy for someone who has an FEV1 um, of one liter. How about just a wedge resection? That means a partial resection of one lobe of the lung. Well, do they have at least an FEV1 that's greater than 0.6? And they can tolerate a wedge resection. There are some, that was, that was pre-op. That's doing the study and being pre-op. Um, by doing the calculations. But what if I told you I need to know if they can tolerate, you know, um, a post-op predicted FEV1. Um, that means we do the resection and they have a certain percent of parenchyma that is still present. Um, for me to know that they would do well, I would calculate what amount of percentage of lung would be removed. And then I would say, would they have greater than an FEV1 of 40% post-op value? that's still there. The best predictor of post-op complications is to do the exact same thing, but to the DLCO, which is like your diffusion of carbon monoxide. That's also on um, a pulmonary function testing. So I would do the calculations. I would say, okay, I'm gonna remove, for instance, um, the right upper lobe, which by the way, typically has at least 
um, three sub-segments in there. So I would calculate what it is to lose your right upper lobe based on your entire lung volume. Then I'll calculate that percentage that's being gone. And whatever the DLCO was previously, I'll reduce um, to a small number. And I would say, is that greater than 40% You know, predicted post-op value? And if it's greater, then I think they'll do okay. But if it brings their DLCO to a number that's like less than 40% of the average person their age, then I know they're going to struggle, you know, unfortunately. They may not do well. They may not come off the uh, ventilator for a long time. They may have all types of comorbidities. We jump to thymoma just for at least a second here. Um, for a patient who has a thymic mass or a mass in the anterior mediastinum, that means um, right distal to the, or kind of inferior to the sternum if they're laying down, um, and they have myasthenia gravis, you remove the thymus, period, all of it, not even just the concerning parts, you remove all of the thymus. And for that, that improves the prognosis and makes patients better greater than 90% of the time. It's, it's rather clear that you would do that. And you can remove the thymus nowadays through a minimally invasive, um, through a video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, also known as VATS surgery, where you just use a camera, go right through the chest wall on the side, and you kind of clear it from one side to the other based on just being only on that one side. And it usually is just three small ports, one for the camera, two for left and right arm. And if you want to have an assistant hold something, you can put in one more port and you can do a great job. What used to require a sternotomy now requires tiny incisions you will never see again. Next slide. So now we talk about several different things. Let's call this the miscellaneous slide. You know, we have hematoma um, that is there. So if you see a popcorn-like lesion on your chest radiograph, that might be a benign uh, collection of abnormal cells that usually does not lead to malignancy. Um, I would never stop at a chest x-ray, you know, refer the evaluated with a uh, CT scan. Then you have thoracic outlet syndrome, um, of which the nerve um, is the most common and less than five to 10% are artery and vein compressions that may cause your thoracic outlet syndromes. Um, for the vein in particular, you may have what's called a paget schroeder um, syndrome. Then we talk about Takayasu's arteritis, so in a young female involving the thoracic and sometimes uh, the other larger vessels, um, there may be some affiliation to this type of um, rheumatologic uh, manifestation. Um, you can have rheumatic fever that leads to mitral stenosis. We saw the rheumatic um, aortic valve from earlier, where the kind of commissures were kind of getting stuck together. But this can also happen to the mitral valve, causing the mitral valve to become stenosed. On this slide is also mentioned a spontaneous pneumothorax, for which that chest x-ray is revealing a decent-sized left pneumothorax. We can see that the left lung is not having any coaptation with the body wall. In fact, it's there's sharing space with air throughout the space of the body wall. Um, so that's called a spontaneous pneumothorax. It happens more common in men. It happens more common in younger people, to be honest with you, um, especially during puberty. The treatment for that is a chest tube, typically leaving it in for at least 48 hours and rechecking to see if you have full lung uh, coaptation um, and then seeing if you have a leak in your chest tube. If you have no leak in your chest tube and the lung is up, then perhaps you can try to wean that chest tube for its removal. Also on this slide is a postmark heart infarction VSD. That means you had a horrible heart attack, so bad that it caused death um, in the middle of your septum that's between your left and right ventricle 
and ultimately by day four or five you have a hole in your septum so now you as an adult who had a heart disease now have a hole of vsd and you are sending blood most likely left to right because you never had that hole there prior so they are a person who has a high um, pressure left side versus right so you're sitting left to right um blood flow there also unfortunately that means you're sending a little bit less blood you know to your body to your brain to your tippy toes and whatnot so um, this is something that typically needs to be fixed by open heart surgery to patch it um, to fix that hole in your heart that you have next slide So several things are mentioned on this slide here. On the left side, you can see coronary artery disease is discussed. It, it is the leading killer in the United States. There is nothing higher. Think of anything and then get rid of it. Coronary artery disease is the highest thing. And cabbage is the most common procedure to fix that. Although PCI, percutaneous coronary intervention, which is done by interventional cardiology is another method to treat it. But depending on what you see, such as you have greater than 50% blockage in your left main, which means before it goes to your left circumflex and left anterior descending, if it's greater than 50% blocked, you're gonna need cardiac surgery, car cabbage in particular, which is um, the most durable. If you have triple vessel disease, that means it's involving your left anterior descending, your left circumflex, and perhaps your right coronary artery as well, then that means that you have three different vessels involved, which means 70% of blockage of each of those three vessels, then you should do a cabbage so you can get durability and not stent them. And if you have disease to your proximal, so your early left anterior descending before it branches out to everything, and any other vessel, then you should highly consider doing cabbage as well. So those are some of the indications. We see here on this diaphragm the different um, levels of, of where things are entering and exiting um, at the T8, T10, and T12, which we mentioned much earlier. You see the IVC, we see vagus, we see esophagus, and at T12, we see the aorta. And then we can see the thoracic duct, which is entering the chest um, at the right side with the aorta at T12. It will cross over between T4 and T5 and ultimately it will join at the junction of the ijane subclavian. Um, that picture on the left is a spontaneous chylothorax, so having a disruption of that thoracic duct tract anywhere can cause you to have this. So in cancers, you can see this, and um, tuberculosis, you can see this, and in surgical procedures where you may not see some of the tributaries um, that are involved with the thoracic duct and you may get into one of them and then you have no idea and now you have this problem where you're leaking chylothorax and you have to change your diet and go through the conservative methods to treat that. There's a good podcast uh, with the Abside Smackdown that discusses this in a little bit more. Also on this slide, it gets one line, but it's my favorite um, pathology for cardiothoracic and that's aortic dissection um, aortic dissection you know for instance type a which means it's the ascending aorta versus type b which means it's not the ascending which means it's the descending aorta most likely um, type a's need to be we need to be um, treated and repaired so a type a ascending aorta could be involving the heart um, could be going downwards to involve the coronary arteries could be going downwards involving the valve which can make your valve incompetent, causing aortic insufficiency, also known as regurgitation, or it can go up to your extremely important vessels that feed your brain, such as your anominate artery or carotids, preventing them from getting blood flow to your brain. So you have aortic dissection, 
you should treat if it's type A. If it's type B, you medically manage it unless it's complex, complicated, would mean that you're having active ischemia concerns um, or things are changing such that the size is changing such that you don't believe that you'll be stable. Um, medical management at first is anti-impulse therapy, keeping your blood pressure down, keeping your heart rate from being too fast, things that cause it to become unstable. You know, if you're able to carry it some time, then the patients actually do very well. But there are also some methods to treat that by TVAR, which I'm sure our audience is probably familiar with. Next slide. So we talked about some of these defects, so we won't, you know, perseverate too much longer, you know, on these. As you can see in the bottom picture, um, if you have a defect in your endocardial cushion development, then you have a complete atrioventricular septal defect. That in and of itself is a pathology. It's a problematic pathology because you're having essentially one chamber. And that one chamber is going to lead to pulmonary hypertension for sure because that pulmonary artery is going to be receiving blood that your LV will be squeezing into it at such a pressure that's inappropriate, which can lead to pulmonary hypertension, then Eisenmenger, and so on and so forth. So perfusing them will be very difficult getting blood flow through that pulmonary system. Next slide. On this slide, we see that neuroblastoma is just mentioned here as being a common posterior mediastinal, mediastinal mass that's most likely seen in the pediatric population. And on the bottom left, we talk about another extremely important fact, and that's A&P. Um, my mnemonic back when I was learning this, I don't know, med school, um, I memorized that A&P makes you pee. So released by the atrium, when you stretch the atrium of the heart, it will cause some changes in your CNS that will lead to diuresis, by naturesis, so that you have sodium loss in your urine. AMP, it makes you pee. Next slide. We're almost done, I promise, guys. In this slide, we're showing a flotation of the pulmonary artery catheter. So how do you maintain a sick patient who has a lot of hemodynamic concerns? Well, you need a lot of hemodynamic information. And the best way to do this is to place a PA catheter. So the moment I have a patient who is in heart failure and I'm saying to myself, I need to know the perfect drug to use at the perfect time, I will float a PA catheter. The catheter is first introduced in, let's say, your internal jugular artery. It goes down your SVC, enters your right atrium, and it goes to your right atrial first. The right atrium is anywhere from zero to six um, millimeters of mercury. Then it will cross your tricuspid valve and into your right ventricle. Now you can see a right ventricular tracing, which has a systolic and diastolic tracing because it's a ventricle, it squeezes. So you can see it could be as systolic 15 to 25 or diastolic 0 to 8. Then you just keep pushing that catheter and you put your balloon up. When your balloon is up, it then makes kind of uh, upward, you know, pass into the pulmonary artery going through the RV outflow. And once it's in the pulmonary artery, we call it um, it, it shifts up, so to speak, as in you don't see zero anymore as any of the numbers because it never empties. The pulmonary artery has a valve. So it's going to have a systolic between 15 and 25 and a diastolic of 8 to 10, unless you put it into someone who you already know has pulmonary hypertension, whereas these numbers are much too low. Now, for a wedge in particular, you keep putting the pulmonary artery catheter with the balloon up as far as you can. You get it occluded. And what ends up happening is, is it is able to measure the pressure on the other side of the balloon. 
that pressure that's on the other side of the balloon, we call that the pulmonary capillary, um, capillary wedge pressure, which is also the left atrial pressure. So that's the pressure of the left atrium. So we can tell you how well the patient is diuresed, how well the patient's you know, volume is based on the right atrial pressure, um, how horrible their heart failure is by seeing how high their wedge pressure is, you know, by their pulmonary hypertension, you can see by their pulmonary artery pressure, what medications we should use to bring that down, so many things. Next slide. Just very quickly on pericardial effusion, also known as tamponade, when it's causing hemodynamic changes. As you can see, um, it is a, a lot of volume that is outside of the heart. If it happens acutely, a small amount of volume can do it. Chronically, you'll see a lot more volume um, cause that harm, and it essentially will cause an equalization of the pressures of the chamber. So once you start seeing that the different chambers have uh, similar pressures, it's a problem. Usually, your echo can do the diagnosis, but sometimes you'll see it on a CT scan, um, but your echo is usually the best way to do it. SVC syndrome, you have a plethoric patient there, so you have a mass or something that's preventing the SVC from draining. You can see the changes on the patient. You'll see a, an IJ that's kind of sticking out, among other things. And an aortic insufficiency, this is an important fact. Um, aortic insufficiency means that you're sending all your blood through the aortic valve when it shouldn't be. The valve should at some point be competent, but it's incompetent and it's allowing regurgitation. In the long term, that is a problem because it makes your LV dilate because the LV should be protected by the valve. You should squeeze, send the blood out, and then you relax. That means during diastole, instead of sending blood to your coronary arteries, you're sending some of that blood into your LV instead. and It causes your LV to have eccentric um, hypertension hypertrophy. It starts to make changes so that the LV gets kind of longer and longer, which is not good. Next slide. This is just a really quick picture on a VSD on the top left um, by ischemia. So you have a heart attack and you cause a VSD that then allows blood flow to go from the left ventricle to the right ventricle. And then in the right picture, you have a, um, this is an abnormal valve so you have the mitral valve kind of stenotic. It's a little bit smaller there um, in that abnormal valve. So therefore, there's less blood flow going through it. And in some cases, you have mitral valve insufficiency if your mitral or mitral valve regurgitation, if your mitral valve is just incompetent and also not allowing a good coaptation between its two leaflets to prevent blood from flowing in the wrong direction. Next slide. So this kind of goes back over that dissection. This is using the Stanford classification and the DeBakey classification. So it just depends. If you're from Texas, you're using DeBakey. If you're in California, you're using Stanford. And that is true, believe it or not. Uh, maybe Stanford is a little bit more popular because it's more simpler. It's, it's letter A or B. So if it's involving the ascending, it's an A. And if it's involving the descending, it's a B. And the A you treat, the Bs you watch and you give medication unless it starts to become unstable or it becomes complicated because you're having ischemia and other issues, then you need to intervene for which TVAR is a possibility. We're still working on methods to treat the ascendings and, and the arches by, by using different complex stents, but the method that you would answer on your boards technically is to do open heart surgery and sometimes circle rest to fix those problems. Next slide. All right, so we've probably seen this curve all throughout, I don't know, 
high school, maybe even middle school, uh, the different shifts um, when you have these different issues. So you go up on your temperature, what happens to your PO2, you go up on your, uh, you increase your acidity or you go down your acidity and you decrease your temperature, you're either going to go left or right. These curves will move as you change those things. So that's just pretty much your heme oxy dissociation curves. How do you offload your O2 easier? It just depends on some of these situations that are happening. And in perineal plastic syndrome, we've already kind of covered that based on you having squamous cell, you may have something versus uh, small cell, you may have something else. ACTH is involved, uh, more for squamous uh, parathyroid hormone. Next slide. So as you can see, this is a cross-section on a CT scan, and this is most likely someone's right lower lobe. Um, a mass that probably is at least no smaller than three centimeters. I mean, um, so definitely probably greater than three. Therefore, it's it's a mass, likely a tumor. So the first thing I would say to myself is, okay, I see something that's probably a tumor in the right lower lobe. I wonder if the mediastinum has any lymph nodes that's greater than one centimeter. Um, and my next step would be to get a diagnosis. I can either use a, a catheter that goes through the body wall, right between the ribs, and that would give me some samples or I can use a navigational bronchoscopy that can go through all of the bronchi from the trachea to get that biopsy into that lesion, you know? Um, so there's two different methods, or I can do an EBUS when I find the lymph node of concern and sample the lymph node, and I can tell you what stage they are as well as what diagnosis they have. There are other definitions of those, para, uh, of those neoplastic syndromes mentioned there as well. Next slide. Pancos tumor, so that's going to be a tumor that is capable of causing a lot of concern. You have important blood vessels, important nerves um, that are feeding the body. Based on that location, you can then say that mass not only um, is causing a, a, a big change, there's some things that we need to do to manage these cancers a little bit differently, whereas radiation may be involved earlier as opposed to the other diagnosis more commonly done um, for your typical lung cancers. So this is involving an important area, so therefore you actually treat it a little bit differently because it's its ability to cause local aggressive invasion on those important structures. Sometimes you'll have an SVC syndrome having concurrently on these same patients because it's causing plethora and preventing the SVC from emptying. Next slide. So we have a coin-shaped lesion here on this chest X-ray, and a couple of the couple of the common lesions that may be, that may be because of those could be things that are benign, granuloma, hematoma, but not unimportant to leave out the fact that it can also be cancer. You know, so these things are important. You see a lesion, how long has it been there? Is there any other image that can tell you? So you can say that you can speak about how it's changing. You know, does it have calcium? There's calcification in it. It might be more benign than malignant. Um, so many different things to look at. Look at the mediastinum, get a CT scan as well, so you can see what the slices are, and then based on the size, you can choose to monitor it, or you can go after it. Going after it's very difficult because something small, that means it's hard to biopsy, especially if it has normal parenchyma within it and it's not completely solid. So suspicious, but you should concern yourself as to the next best step, because operating on all of them will lead to more morbidity than is appropriate but you can always do a wedge resection, send it off to pathology and have an answer for the patient who is otherwise adamant and can tolerate it. You can consider that. 
If it's no growth for two years, consider it benign. Next slide. All right, so this is a carcinoid tumor, which is a neuroendocrine tumor. Just by the way, just FYI, I want you guys to also know, small cell is also a neuroendocrine tumor. But the carcinoids, they tend to have a decent prognosis sometimes. Um, but this is in the airway. This is, this is someone who's probably getting bronch to some extent. So what I would say is, unlike many other um, tumors, they love to bleed. So be very careful when you have a nice carcinoid tumor that you're now seeing in the airway you try to resect this, they may bleed, so you'll have to you know, go after in certain ways or, or bring in the right therapies. Um, and if you do any level of cautering inside the bronch, and then you need to bring your oxygen all the way down, make sure you don't forget that so you don't cause a fire. Um, next slide. All right, well, that concludes our very large cardiothoracic surgery review. Um, it's the most important section that you can consider um, in life. Having said that, um, I am Claude and Lewis, and that concludes my time. Thank you guys for having me. Get more AppSite content in your daily routine. Visit us on Instagram at daily.appsite.fact, on Facebook at AppSite Smackdown, or LinkedIn at AppSite Smackdown. And you can catch the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any place you listen to your favorites. Don't forget our YouTube channel, AppSite Smackdown.